Good morning. Would you please stand with me and join me in reading from uh, the screen, please? Our scripture today is Matthew 5, 27 to 30, which is also located on page 525 of your Bible. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this morning that you have given to us and for this time under your word. We pray now that the Holy Spirit himself would come and help all of us. My mouth, that it would speak your words, your people's ears, that they would hear, and our minds so that we would understand, and our hearts so that they would not be hard, but we'd receive. And we pray that your Spirit himself, who alone has power, would come and do great work, the work of ripping out and tearing out sin from our lives so that we might find ourselves, having gone through the pain of it, more joyful than ever before, closer to God, more useful in the world. Come do these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 26, 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston was hiking through some canyons in Utah when an 800-pound boulder was dislodged and fell on him crushed his right hand and trapped him by the canyon wall, making him unable to move. If you've seen this movie called 127 Hours, you've seen his story, and that movie was trying to capture what happened in the days that followed in Aaron Ralston's experience. Aaron Ralston spent the next three days trying to somehow break his arm free with no success. Uh, What happens in the story is that he's got this little bit of water that he's sipping on and slowly rationing out for these five days. He's got these two small burritos that he's nibbling on to somehow try and stay alive. But pretty soon he couldn't fight off the dehydration that set in and became delirious. By day five, he was forced to drink his own urine to somehow try and stay alive. By the fifth day, he carved his name into the canyon wall videotaped his final goodbyes, wrote down through that wall the date of his birth and what he imagined would be the date of his death, and went to sleep at night, pretty sure that he would not wake up in the morning. When, to his surprise, he did wake up in the morning, he had this epiphany of what he had to do. Suddenly, he had this one moment of clear thinking, and it became crystal clear to him what he had to do. Aaron Ralston realized that he needed to amputate his own right arm in order to stay alive. Now, I watched this segment of this interview that he did with Tom Brokaw after the event, and he describes in excruciatingly painful, hard-to-listen detail of the surgery, the operation that he performed on himself. He found a way to use force to break two of his own bones in his arm, and then had this cheap ghetto little Swiss Army knife a two-inch pocket knife, somewhat dull, and he began to cut. 
And he begins to describe what it was like to cut layer after layer into muscle, what it was like then to have to take pliers and twist off tendon, until he said that he finally saw what looked like a spaghetti string of nerve. And he said just touching it sent fire through his shoulder like he had been dipped in hot metal, and in one yank pulls off the nerve. And then, hour after hour, he slowly begins to cut, 127 hours after he got stuck, with one final swift move, he had fallen free. He had amputated his own right forearm, and he had now been free. And you know what was amazing? He said that moment was the greatest moment, happiest moment of his life. Think about that. He just cut off his right arm, and he said that was the happiest moment of his life. In fact, the reporter said, you felt like you were reborn, didn't you? And that's exactly what he said. I was reborn. It was like he was born again. Mm. Now, imagine that, cutting off your own right arm. I mean, how desperate would you have to be? How badly would you have to be stuck for you to do that? How desperate would you need to be to want to be free? How badly would you want to be alive that it would come to that? I think in one sense it's kind of simple. I think it comes down to this. Would you rather lose your arm to save your life or save your arm and lose your life? Right? Would you rather lose your arm to save your life or lose your life to save your arm? That's what it comes down to. And most of us, I think, would say we're just glad we don't have to make that decision. We're just glad we don't have to make that choice. Except then today's passage comes. And I think Jesus comes to us and says, that's exactly the choice you have to make. That's exactly the position that you're in. Because you are in the same exact spot and you have to make the same exact choice. What I think Jesus is saying to us is, there is an 800 pound boulder on you. And some of us know this really well. Some of us don't have to be convinced because some of us have struggled with this for a long time. There's an 800 pound boulder on you called lust. And some of you are stuck. And you know it. And some of you know that this thing has pinned you down and you're under the weight of this thing and no matter how hard you have tried to break free, you can't seem to get out from underneath the weight. And you're pinned down and this thing is going to kill you and you will either resign that you're going to die. And some of us have done that. Some of us almost have come to peace with this thing and we've just assumed I'm going to die with this thing. This thing is going to go with me to the grave. I'm never going to break out of it. The only time this dies is when I finally die. Some of us have made peace and have resigned to die with this thing. Or, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to do something radical about it. You're going to have to do something incredibly radical. And if that is you, if that is the inclination of your heart today, I am so glad Jesus brought you to church this morning. Because I really think he has a word of hope to you. I think what Jesus wants to do is look you in the eye and say, I want to break you free today. I really want to set you free. I have the power to set you free. I think that's why Jesus has brought you here. Now, Jesus will also look you in the eye and say, it's going to cost you. You might have to cut off your right arm. You might lose your right eye. So Jesus isn't hiding that this thing is going to be excruciatingly painful. But he is promising, if you'll be with me on this, you can be free from this even today. So Sebmaro, that's what Jesus has us thinking about this morning. So listen again, we read it together, but listen again to Jesus' words. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, let me, let me say this, because some of you hear that, and if you're new to Christianity or you're sort of checking this thing out about Christianity or Christian faith, perhaps this set of verses and this passage and what we're saying perhaps confirms for you every stereotype you already have about Christianity. Right? When you hear this, it might just confirm for you every, every assumption you have about the Christian faith, that you already come into the conversation thinking, that's what I always figured. Christians are uptight, and prudish and a bit primitive when it comes to talking about sex or, or any of these things. Some of us would assume, look, the Bible probably has one message when it comes to sex. Don't, right? That's the one thing. It's dirty, it's disgusting, whatever you can do, avoid it. That's the, the Bible's message when it comes to sex. And this passage probably confirms that suspicion for you. In your mind, you're thinking, this is a prudish faith, this is a backwards and primitive faith, and this passage, are you, are you kidding me? You're talking, about, you're talking about something like lust, something that's in, innocent and invisible that goes on in our mind, and, and Jesus is going to attach that to hell? This just confirms every stereotype you have. If that's you, I want you to hear this. You haven't read the Bible for yourself. Because the truth is, you could not be further from the truth when it comes to how the scriptures deal with Sex. If you read the Bible for yourself, you'll see that the Bible doesn't fit sort of the promiscuous segment of society, nor the prudish segment of society. Right? Hear that. Because if you're the promiscuous segment of sort of secular society, or the prudish segment of sort of religious culture and society, the Bible, what it has to say about sex, doesn't fit with either. It doesn't square well with either. Because in a promiscuous culture, like the one you see all around you, Right? It shouts to you, sex is everything. Right? The, the sermons that our culture speaks to us is, sex is everything. You've got to do whatever you can do to get sex. Sex is the highest thing. Without it, you'll never be happy or whole. We, we can't sell a can of beer without sex. Everything revolves around sex for our culture. And so in our culture, sex is God. It's ultimate. This is what you've got to have above all things. But then you come to prudish, somewhat religious culture, and it's the exact opposite, which is sex is not everything, sex is nothing. It's, it's dirty, it's disgusting, it's sort of a necessary evil. It's our baser instinct, and we've got to fight this away, and we got to, God hates it, but he has to put up with it because we need babies. And so it's, you know, this necessary evil for procreation, but other than that, we should avoid it completely. Yeah, yeah. And the scriptures come, by the way, Doug's going to do that all sermon long. <laughs> I know you don't understand, but he's agreeing with me. Just so you know. <laughs> the scriptures come and say, listen, the Bible's view of sex doesn't fit a promiscuous culture where sex is God, nor a prudish culture where sex is garbage. The scriptures will come and say, sex is something completely other. It's not God or garbage, it's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift from God. Okay? It's a gift from God. So if you read the Bible, you'll find that the Bible doesn't square well with either of these. 
Right? You, you open the Bible. The first page. You don't get out of page one in the Bible without talking about sex. Do you know God creates Adam and Eve? And what's the first command he gives them? The first command is not don't go eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil. The first command is not a don't. It's a do. The first command is be fruitful and multiply. The first God command God gives to humanity is go make love and make babies. That's the first thing he says to mankind. Right? You don't get out of chapter two, I mean two pages into the Bible, and you've got naked Adam singing like Barry White to naked Eve, and he's doing what? Love poetry. You are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. You are woman, for you were taken out of the man. He's singing to his naked bride. This is what the scriptures say. You, you've got in the Bible a whole book of the Bible dedicated to two lovers and their lovemaking and their love for one another. And, and listen, it doesn't square well with either segment of society. Because if you're promiscuous and you read the Song of Solomon, you're going to get red in the face, angry. Because it's going to say some things that you don't like. But if you're prudish and part of religious culture and you read Song of Solomon, you're going to get red in the face just blushing from embarrassment. How could a book this holy say things like this so brazenly, so openly, without shame? Right? Both, both of us. The prudish of us and the promiscuous of us are going to read the scriptures and it's not going to sit well with us. For example, if you're promiscuous and you read Song of Solomon, you're going to hear it say things like, do not awaken love until it's time. What's that? That's this one man and one woman who are head over heels in love with one another and they can't wait for their wedding day and for their wedding night. And they can't wait, and they're doing everything within themselves to fight for purity in that relationship. That doesn't sit well with our culture, right? Because what Song of Solomon is saying is, here, sex is not God, sex is not garbage, it is a gift, but it's got boundaries around that gift. Boundaries like the marriage of one man and one woman in, in this covenantal union, husband and wife, and there it can be free and frequent and fun and all the rest, but it is within that boundary. And that doesn't sit well with our world and our culture. Because when it comes to sex, our culture has one rule. As long as it's consensual among adults, that's it. Every other arrangement goes. It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't even anymore matter number. As long as it's consensual and as long as it's among adults, it does not matter. We've got no rules beyond that when it comes to sex. Right? And so that culture hears, do not awaken love until it's time. What time? Right? What rules? But, but that flies in the face of everything our culture preaches to us. The sermons that our culture preaches to us. For example, I came across this week a website. I saw the interview of CNN and the CEO of this website. And the entire website, I won't give you the address for it. The entire website is given so that married couples can discreetly go and have an affair. Right? An entire website devoted to, you're a married person looking for a discreet affair, you create a profile, there's 27 million members. 27 million members, and CA, the CEO is on CNN, and with a straight face is talking to the reporter about the benefits of infidelity, and the backwards thinking of monogamy. I read this week that there's a new reality show coming out on TV, on reality networks or cable or whatever it is, about naked dating. And, and the, the, the show is exactly, you, you'd think it was something else. It's exactly that. In fact, let me, let me read you the blurb of it. 
Okay? It says this. These days, it's hard to truly connect. I love that line. <laughs> it's hard to truly connect. Hard to see people for who they really are. And so a new social experiment provides daters with a radical dating experience where before they bear their souls, they bear everything else first. And each week on a primitive resort island, daters will go on exotic dates and be naked every step of the way. And the way the show is going to work is you go on three dates with three sets of people, you're all naked together, and at the end of the day, you're going to choose who you spend the rest of your life or night with. Right? That's the show. Now... A promiscuous culture hears that and hears the scriptures say, do not awaken love until it's time and it flies in the face of all of that. But a prudish religious culture reads the book of Song of Solomon and is read in the face with blushing and embarrassment because the Song of Solomon says things that you wouldn't let your kids read. The the man on his wedding night surveys his wife from head to toe and he starts describing her and he says things like, You're a palm tree, and you've got clusters, and I'm going to climb the palm tree and lay hold of its clusters. Now, I'll let you make what that is. Yeah, and you can't look at me straight, because then it's going to be awkward for both of us. (laughs) She, not, not just him, she, on the wedding night, starts to look at him and describes him from head to toe and describes his head and his face and his chest and his arms all the way down to his most intimate parts. This is what the scriptures say for a married couple. And so what the scriptures have to teach, the Bible, listen to me, has a much more healthy and robust view of sex than anything you'll find in religious or promiscuous circles. The the Bible teaches that, that sex is not God to be worshipped over and above all things. And it's not garbage to be discarded. It's a gift. And because it's a gift, Jesus has some really strong words about guarding that gift. Right? If you get that, if you get what a gift it is, now you get why Jesus has some incredibly hard and strong words about guarding that gift. This is why Jesus says, hear it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember for a moment what Jesus is doing in this section. Right? This section is over and over again six times Jesus saying you have heard that it was said but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Right? So what he's doing is, you've heard that it was said this way in the Old Testament. And we said last week, he's not come to repudiate the Old Testament or abolish the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus has just finished saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Right? That every dot, every little iota is going to remain, Jesus said. So I haven't come to abolish any law, but what he has come to do is over and over again dismantle the religious leader's interpretation of the law. You've heard it said from your religious leaders this, but I say to you. That's what we saw him do last week with murder. That's what we're going to see him do again this week with adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. See, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to reverse, abolish, dismantle, destroy the Pharisees and the religious leaders' interpretation of this law. So here's what they would have done. The Pharisees would have taken the command, you shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment. 
And they would have looked at the secular society around them. The promiscuous people. And they would have looked and they would have said, can you believe them? Naked dating. Can you believe them? Websites for infidelity. And they would have said, I have never cheated on my spouse. And they would have patted themselves on the back. And they would have said, seventh commandment? Check. You, you can just add that to my resume. Here's another law, another command that I have kept perfectly because I look nothing like them out there. And they would have found a way for them to say, look, that culture out there is going to help. And we're so different. And Jesus comes in this passage and says, hear me carefully. If you're not careful and you don't do something drastic, you're headed for the same place they are. Now, did you hear him say that? He, he just said to a bunch of upstanding people who have never cheated on their spouse, who would never be within a million miles of naked dating, who, who have never done anything like that, and he just finished saying to them, if you don't gouge out your eyes and tear off your hands, you will be in hell, body and soul. So, so hear what Jesus is doing. He is lumping together serial adulterers and promiscuous people and religious people who have never committed adultery in their whole life and putting them in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. And saying, if you're not careful, there's something devastating that's coming to both of you. Mm. You see, because here's, here's what the religious, command, the religious people would do. They would have said, sixth commandment, right? You shall not murder. We talked about this last week. They would have said, okay, as long as you don't commit homicide, you're good. And Jesus, remember, was teaching underneath the what God is against is a massive reality of what God's for. Yeah. Underneath the do not murder is that's because I am for life. I'm for life in your relationships with people. And so if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. Well, it's the same thing here. Underneath the do not commit adultery is a massive iceberg of what God is actually for. It's not just that he's against adultery. There's a massive reality of what he's for. And so the Pharisees would have taken, do not commit adultery, seventh commandment, I've never gone to bed with someone and said, I'm good. And Jesus comes in this section and says, there you go again, with your bare minimum technicality, loophole-seeking righteousness. Well, well. Right? There you go again with your, mom said, don't touch your brother. We said that last week. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Right? There you go again with that again. Right? Do not commit adultery. I've never gone to bed with anyone. I'm good. There you go again with your technicality, loophole-seeking, bare minimum righteousness. You keep the letter of the law and you miss the whole spirit of it. Yeah. Right? Because here's what Pharisees would do. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Because religious people do it all the time. Uh, a, a person who gets God's law is going to ask a set of questions that's different than how a Pharisee is going to ask questions. So, for example, the Pharisee is not hearing, do not commit adultery, and is thinking to himself, that means God is for fidelity. God is for purity. God is for faithfulness. So, when I go out on a date with someone, I'm thinking, how can I honor this woman? How can I bring life to her? How can I better her life for her having taken a risk and going out on a date with me? The Pharisee's thinking, how close can I get to the line before it's sin? The Pharisees going, tell me where the line is, right? What can we do before it becomes sin? You ever heard of that question? How far is too far? How much can we do before it becomes sin? Now, I don't want to presume on every motive because there might be a genuine heart there. But most of the time, it's because we're looking for Pharisee righteousness. How close can I get to the line before I get zapped? How, how much can I get away with? That's the heart behind Pharisee righteousness. 
right? And Jesus is saying, stop with your invention of crooked lies and your crooked lines and your invention of standards. And hear me, this command is not just what you do with your hands, but what is going on in your heart. Jesus comes and says to us who are religious and says to people like us, you want to know what the line is? Here's the line. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's the line. Everyone who looks at a woman, right? So he's talking to men and sisters, certainly this would apply to women as well, but Jesus, I think, knows. Brothers, you need to hear this really well. Every man who looks at a woman, and it's not just any kind of look, right? It's not just the look that notices that someone is attractive or beautiful. It's not a a single man who notices an attraction to a woman. No, he, he qualifies it so that we don't get silly. Every man who looks at a woman, how? With lustful intent. That is the, the fascinating and the, the fantasizing and the contemplating and the imagining and the daydreaming and the, the owning and the taking what's not yours. That whole angst and world that goes on in your heart. Every man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already. So you want to know where the line is, how close you are. Jesus says you've crossed the line. You're done has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that affair that you played out in the mental gymnastics of your mind, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, if you take that in, brothers, sisters, brothers especially, how are we doing? You see, the command was not just against the act of adultery. The command revealed that God is for purity. God is for fidelity. God is for purity in all your relationships. You you see the command, the seventh command, do not commit adultery, wasn't given so that you could get off on a technicality. I'm good. I didn't sleep with anyone. The seventh command was given in part to show you, you and I are a mess. When it comes to sex, you and I are a mess. Whether we're promiscuous or prudish, you and I have been a mess all our lives. You see, here's the reality. The reality is the promiscuous types will go on naked dating. The prudish types will sit from their homes and go, that's disgusting. How could people do that? And then have to fight everything in them not to Google the show. Because we're never going to go there. We're never going to do that. That's them. That's depraved people. What we prefer is to watch it in the comfort of our own homes. While we can look down on them for being so depraved. And Jesus is saying, promiscuous and prudish, you're all in the same boat. You are a mess when it comes to the seventh commandment. So what, what this command does, if you really let it in, is you go, I need Jesus. I, I am what verse one of this whole sermon said. I'm poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt spiritually. I'm bankrupt morally. I've got nothing on my resume. I've got no righteousness to boast in. I've been a mess in this area of your life. And if in circles that are safe, you talk about this, all of us would confess. We've been a mess when it comes to this whole thing. And it brings us, this command brings us again to, I need the cross and I need blood from Jesus to wash over my whole being and clean my inside and out and wash out my eyes and purify my being and and cleanse my mind because my whole being has been covered in the filth of this sin. And if you get that, then you you get, I don't need Pharisee righteousness. I need Jesus' righteousness. I need his spirit. I need the cross afresh and anew, even this morning. Jesus saying, underneath, do not commit adultery. 
It's a bigger command. Do be pure. Do do be faithful. Do practice fidelity. And Jesus is going to say that is worth pursuing no matter what the cost. Hear that. That is worth pursuing no matter what it takes because the stakes could not be higher. Could you hear with me again what he says in verse 29 and 30? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying, you've got to be radical in your approach about this sin because the stakes could not be higher. This sin will not stop till it takes your whole soul. Right? Jesus is saying, this thing will not stop until it costs you body and soul in hell. It won't stop. You, you think it's going, you're going to master it, it's going to master you. You think it's going to serve you, you are going to serve it. It will not stop till it has your whole being. I read this account from a pastor named Randy Alcorn. And Randy Alcorn was saying that he was reading one account, hearing one account after another of pastors who were falling to sexual sin. And he said that he heard this over and over again, men in his line of work, over and over again, falling out of their office because of sexual sin and immorality. And he said he read this one account of one pastor who said that if he had just thought through all that it would cost him, he doesn't think he would have done it. And so Randy Alcorn and some of the pastor friends of his started to write out a list of all that infidelity or immorality or adultery would cost them. And he said that he would write this list and annually review it together with his brothers. Right, so let me read you just some of the things he wrote down. He said that as he thought about what adultery, what an affair, what sin unchecked in his life would cost, he said he thought to himself, it means he would drag Christ's reputation into the mind. Think of that. You've been preaching, you've been talking to people about Jesus. Imagine what it would be to drag Christ's reputation in the mind. He said, then he thought about how he would have to stand before Jesus one day, look him in the eye, and give an account for what he had done and why. I mean, what would that be to stand before your Savior and have to talk through that? He said, then after that, he thought about the untold hurt that it would cause his wife, his best friend, his loyal bride, and what it would mean to lose her trust And her respect after that sin. He thought about what it would mean for his daughters. To try and have to explain to them what happened. And why they would ever believe another word that came out of his mouth. When he was not faithful to their mom. He thought about what shame it would bring to his family. How he'd have to answer the question of why isn't dad a pastor anymore. What shame it would bring to his church. What comments his enemies would make who have always been looking for something and now have logs on the fire, fuel for that. He thought to himself the the pleasure that it would bring to God's enemy. He pictured Satan grinning with a smile on his face. He thought to himself of of what it could cost his body of, of, of possibly causing a pregnancy and all the ramifications of his act. And the utter discrediting of his name, his reputation, his ministry, and the lifelong embarrassment. And that was just half the list. And he said he reviews this annually so as to keep in his mind what this thing, what this sin unchecked will cost. And Jesus adds to that whole list. If you give yourself over to a lifetime of small compromises and many hypocrisies, 
You make this heart of yours so hard that it cannot repent until the day you find your heart, soul, and body thrown into hell. And so Jesus says, if you get that, then you cannot waste time anymore. But you must tear out your eyeball. You must rip out your hand and throw it away, for it would be better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That's what it's going to take, Jesus says. Now, I don't think Jesus is being literal, because blind men can lust. What Jesus is saying is, you are Aaron Ralston. There's an 800-pound boulder sitting on your arm. And unless you rip this thing out, this thing is going to bleed you out. And this thing is going to kill you. I think Jesus is saying it's very simple, you see. You're either going to lose your arm to save your life, or you're going to save your arm and lose your life. It comes down to this. Are you really still negotiating? Are you still making treaties and peace offerings with this sin? Are you still entertaining whether such drastic actions are necessary? And Jesus is saying, it is, and it is now. Let me read you this one quick account in a book called Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in C.S. Lewis's book, he imagines this conversation between this man and an angel. And this man has this sin, this sort of pet sin. It's like a lizard on his shoulder, right? And, and now hear this dialogue between this angel and this man who's got this pet sin growing on him. He says, the angel says, would you like me to make him quiet? Because this lizard with its slithering tongue is speaking into the man's ears. Said the flaming angel, an angel as I now understood. Of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, you're burning me. Keep away, said the man, retreating. Don't you want him killed, said the angel? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with something so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for a moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, said the man. May I kill it, said the angel. Well, there's time to discuss that later, said the man. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I will be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it, said the man. The gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Don't you think so? Well, well, I'll think over what you've said carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling very well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. It must be now. Get back. You're burning me. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt. I only said it wouldn't kill you. The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the man so loud that I could hear what he was saying. The lizard said, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from him and he will. You, you will be without me forever and ever. And that's not natural. How could you live? And I'll be so good. I admit in times past I've gone too far, but I promise I won't do it again. From now on, I'll give you nothing but nice, sweet, innocent dreams. So fresh and so innocent, you can almost say it's innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel. I know it will kill me, said the man. 
It won't. But suppose it did, said the angel. And then listen to what the man says. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature anymore. Then may I? And the man says, go on. Get it over with. Do what you like. And whimpering and crying, he says, God help me. God help me. And the next moment, the man gave a scream of agony as such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it off, broken-backed, and it hit the turf. And listen, if you keep reading, the man describes what Aaron Ralston described, that the next moment was the happiest moment of his life. And I think that's what Jesus comes and says. Jesus is not playing games here where he's pretending this thing won't be painful. He's saying it's going to rip you apart as I rip this thing out and off. But the moment right after is going to be the happiest moment of your life. Jesus is saying, are you entertaining still some less drastic option with this thing? Declare war today and fight this thing. It will cost you. It will be painful. So hear me. For some of you, that tearing out the eye, that ripping out the hand, what will that look like for you this week? Right? That, that cost, that pain, what will that be? For some of you, it's simply, it's going to be the pain and hurt and the cost of your pride. Because it is going to be painful to have to confess this. For some of us, we've let this thing grow in the dark for decades, and we know it. This thing has been with us since we were 12, 14, 9 Some of us know that if we don't do something about this, our teenage sons and us will struggle with the same things. And Jesus is coming and saying, I know it's going to cost you pride. I know you're going to have to be honest and open in a way you've never been. It's going to hurt like crazy, but on the other side of that is the happiest moment of your life. Right? For some of you, it's going to be that you sit down with a brother and you confess. Your soul care communities where you're playing it safe... Hear me. Until you're honest about this one sin, I've found that no soul care, at least for the men, is really honest. Because this is the one thing we like to keep close to our guard. This is the one thing we protect. And Jesus, I think, is saying, lay this on the table too. Look, look the cross has already shown you to be a sinner. You're not going to surprise anyone. And, and here it is, you lay this out. And not in sporadic confession so that you can still save face. But in the honest, real confession, time and time again. So that 19 times in, you begin to find the power of this thing is loosened over you. For some of you, it's going to mean obedience is going to mean you're going to sit down with your spouse. And it's going to be painful. And you tell them, you tell him, you tell her the truth. And some of you would imagine, but I I don't want to hurt the person. You're already hurting the person. They just don't know it. You've got to come clean so that Jesus can take the darkness away from this thing. Right? This sin, like no other, loves to grow in the dark. And what Jesus is saying is, you've got to throw open the doors and let light stream in so that this thing begins to shrivel up and die. That's what Jesus wants to do for you today. For some of you, it'll cost you inconvenience. It means you've got to cancel cable. Or you got to leave your laptop at work. Or you got to sign up for a filter. Or you got to create some kind of path of accountability. Listen, none of those things save you. Jesus saves you. But all those things help. 
All those things come and take the heart and help you with your behavior. And Jesus is calling you to that. For some of you, it means that show that you've loved for a long time that's never done your soul one bit of good, you're done with that. You're done. It means whatever drastic step it takes to pursue God, you're going to take them today. You're going to commit your heart today to take them. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Let me end by telling you this. Jesus says to a room full of adulterers, and can we be honest, that's who we are. A room full of adulterers. And he says, before you leave here, can I remind you how I interacted with adulterers? Right? Do you, do you remember John 8? There's this story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they bring her to him so that everybody can stone her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, after he chases them all away, he looks her in the eye and he says, is there anyone left to condemn you? Hear me, Sabamarod. Is there anyone left to condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. That's what Jesus is going to say to you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest with ourselves, this sin in particular has the ability to humble us and to show us we're poor in spirit. We don't have a single leg up on the promiscuous culture outside the four walls of this church. What they do in public, we do in private and in secret. And today, Father, would you convict us so that we become again humble and poor in spirit, desperate and needy for Christ, with a fresh and a new a need for the blood of the cross to wash our filth away, and to know that when we look to our Savior, we find one not disgusted by us, but who says to us, I don't condemn you. And by your Spirit, help us to hear the second part also, go and sin no more. Come, Holy Spirit, into our hearts and quicken and enable us to take the steps you're calling us to take. Some of our hearts may be beating a hundred miles an hour right now as we think about what you're calling us to do. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and give strength to that person right now. Put steel in their spine right now to give them the courage and strength to act in obedience. And on the other side of that incredible pain, may be immense joy. Holy Spirit, I cannot add another word or say something that would help, but for me and for my brothers and my sisters in this room, come and act, we'd ask and pray, so that this year would be the change of the start of something different, a new trajectory in our lives. Do more than we need to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.